Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 197. Thank you for your attention. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number 15 from Benjamin Evans. The message is 20 seconds long and comes from the summer of 1990. Here we go. Uh, hello, Paul. Uh, I guess you're in uh, Minneapolis or St. Paul or you're someplace other than Chicago because you haven't been around for the last couple of days. I guess I can uh, deduce that. Uh, this is Benjamin Evans, uh, 684. I'm just uh, calling. Uh, thank you for your attention. Were you, in fact, in uh, Minneapolis? I don't know. I might have been in San Francisco. Because you call three times. You were calling, I think, because you wanted to buy a comic book from me. I had, I think, the first edition of Man Bat. You wanted to buy that. Oh, I remember Man Bat, of course. You know, it's like the name implies, it just takes Batman and inverts it. Instead of being like a human dressing as a bat, he's a bat dressing as a human. Or to be more precise, a human who injects himself with some secret formula and transforms into a humanoid uh, bat creature. How many comic books do you have? Oh, it's hard to say. I'd say thousands. When did you start collecting comic books? My grandfather was a librarian, and he was the director of the Rogers Free Library in Bristol, Rhode Island. And he had the idea of trying to do stuff for kids. And so one of the things he did was uh, he would buy uh, comic books to, and have them in the library, which at the time was like a radical idea. But he would bring the comics that had been so battered and abused by all the readers at the library. He would bring them to our house when he would come on Sundays and have uh, dinner with us. I, I would just have this steady diet of these like obscure books like, you know, Swamp Thing or horror comics like Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night. I just got hooked. So I want to go back to your years of drag king. So how did the personnel change over the years? Stel Valavanis was obviously one of the key people that, that started the band and his uh, computer business got really busy. He had less time for the band, and we kind of brought in other people like Mark Lazo on guitar, Mark Wardo on drums, Alex Martin on drums, Cole Eiler on drums. Uh, there was this guy, Nobu, who was a graduate student in psychology from Japan. He was kind of a character because he had this huge, long hair, and um, he lived in this tiny apartment in Hyde Park, like a basement garden apartment. The walls are like lined with CDs. In the center of the room was a baby grand piano, and he slept underneath the piano on, on like a little thin futon. And so we started collaborating with him. So instead of having like a very set group of people, we had more of kind of a shifting cast of characters, you know? Um, one of my favorite shows was we played in this like, people were like squatting in an abandoned building in Chicago, and we got the Thinking Fellows Union, Local 282 from San Francisco, which is one of our favorite bands. And they were in Chicago, and they played there, and we opened for them. And I remember the guy from the Empty Bottle was there, uh, Bruce. And a few days later, the city shut down that space. Uh, and we think it was because Bruce was like, I'm not going to let these punk kids take my business. Did you play at any festivals? 
I organized a festival called the Destroy All Music Festival, where, you know, we had a ton of bands, Scissor Girls, a band called Blowhole from the West Coast, Carnival de Carnitas, just a ton of different bands doing more abstracted, deconstructed, post-rock stuff. Where was that? It was in the Ruiz Belvis uh, Puerto Rican Cultural Center in Wicker Park. I think that must have been like 1996, 97. How did you feel when you left Chicago about the band? You know, we had so much fun doing it. By its very nature, it, it was never going to connect with a like a large audience. And we always had the idea that if you have a day job, you know, which is like a job you can live on, then that frees you and you can make whatever kind of art you want. You don't have to worry about selling it. Ted Gray and I would kind of joke about like, for us, like band practice was maybe like what people from an earlier generation would, they would have their, their like bridge club, you know, their bowling league or, you know what I mean? Like something like that. We definitely never dreamed of a major label because remember for most of the time we were doing this, this is before like Nirvana broke big. And so like the biggest possible label would be like Matador or Shimmy Disc, Twin Tone or uh, like a really big label would be like Discord Records. Like, oh my God, you know, Sub Pop, holy moly. Those bands were still like driving in a Ford Econoliner, crashing on someone's couch. It was not a luxurious lifestyle, you know, hard to afford an apartment even a level of success that we never even approached. One difficulty in researching the history of Drag King in newspaper archives is the countless articles found in a search using the keywords Drag King Show that focus not on a 1990s Chicago post-rock collective, but instead on the masculine counterpart to drag queen shows. Women performing and passing as men has a long history, but the rise of drag queens in popular culture since the 1990s has helped to highlight this less well-known gender-bending art form. The website for the band Drag King acknowledges the possible confusion by stating on its homepage If you are looking for information on the Drag King scene and culture, please click on the above link, with the link going to the Drag King Wikipedia page. The Drag King website is also the best source for articles published about the band, mostly record reviews found in obscure fanzines, but also reviews of their shows including one by Weasel Walter, published in a Chicago zine called Nice Slacks, from winter of 1992. According to Walter, who saw the band at Club Lower Links, Drag King began their second set with some multimedia assault weaponry. Some guy operating a slide projector, another controlling a tape deck, clogged with pseudo-eclectic sound bites, and a mock MC5 Hawkwind-type space jam that made me bust a fucking spleen. After noodling around within those parameters, the drags burst into the most unbelievable 20-minute ultimo-progressive rock epic I have ever witnessed. Ridiculously inept, 
but passionate musicianship. Sludgy layers of shifting riffs played simultaneously in different keys. Totally fucked up attempts at clever, weird time signature breaks. La-la melodies executed over marching snare beats. Hilarious white boy catharsis attempts particularly by one guitar player who frequently tried to squonk with all his might, except due to cheesy guitar and distortionless setup, the result was totally pathetic and sounded not unlike rubber bands. Man, you name it, I loved it. It was fucking amazing. Over the course of the 1990s, Drag King released three 7-inch vinyl records and two CDs. They also had tracks featured on several compilation albums. After the band broke up, Ted Gray produced four more CDs using the Dogpatch record label, two of which contain recordings from live shows. All of these tracks can be listened to for free at the Drag King website dragking.org and you can of course listen to all the previous episodes of phone messages at my website pfoch.com that's p-f-o-t-s-c-h dot com many thanks to Ben for dragging up the past and to Ted Gray for keeping the Drag King archive alive And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.